0: Happy Monday. This is your host, Sophia Nelson. Welcome to Epluribus Podcast, the podcast dedicated to everything about America, from politics to culture, race to finances, the arts and culture, who we are, who we want to be, how we were formed, uh, where we find ourselves. Uh, I'm really excited. We are in our first month. Of being a live podcast, and uh, we have had over uh, 50,000 listens uh, with 15 episodes. Uh, We have a universe that is expanding of thousands of listeners, not just here at home in the United States, but also abroad, and I think about eight or nine countries now. So, first, thank you. I'm humbled, I'm honored. I appreciate you. This is the week of October the 6th. Um, autumn has arrived in uh, the mid-Atlantic in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It finally cooled off. Uh, the leaves are rustling. and uh, been raking them up. And uh, we are certainly now into uh, the final uh, quarter of 2019. You know, it occurred to me the other day, That we are actually ending a decade. Uh, 2020 will usher in a new decade. Um, Harder to figure that out in the 1990s when it was 1990 uh, or then it became uh, 19, um, you know, uh, 20 or 1930 or 1940 or 1950 or 1960, 70, 80, 90, 2000 it was easier to keep up with every 10 years. Now that we're into the 2000s, and we are 20 years into the 2000s, I think we often forget that we still have decades. So um, I just want you to start thinking about is today is Monday motivation. And every Monday, I like to give a message to my listeners that is certainly something to do with America, but that inspires you as we are winding up Um, this final quarter of 2019, I I like to uh, nudge you to start thinking about your next year now. And again, as we enter this new decade, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, where have I been? Uh, Where am I going? And what do I want from my life? Um, and today's topic is, uh, it's time for America to have a courageous conversation. It's time for America to have a courageous conversation. Uh, There's a lot to talk about. Uh, We're only seven days into October and a lot has happened politically, culturally, uh, socially. And I want to talk about two things that are on my mind this morning. And uh, as you listen throughout the day and throughout the week to this Monday motivation, uh, I want to encourage you to really hear me on this because this doesn't just apply to this message about America needing to have a courageous conversation, but I think you need to have one in your life with your loved ones, with your uh, significant other, with your spouse, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, with your children, uh, perhaps with your parents, perhaps with your siblings. Uh, We need to have them at the church house. We need to have them at our house. We need to have them at the work. Uh, place lunchroom we need to have them at the soccer outings and the football outings with the kids when we're sitting in the stands with other parents um we need to have them in town hall meetings with our elected officials we need to have them courageous conversations are simply those conversations that we avoid in day-to-day life because they're uncomfortable Uh, those conversations that when we have them um Always, and let me underscore the word, always enlighten us. They bring us closer. They bring closure. They bring healing. Um, Not talking about things, sticking our heads in the sand like we're ostriches doesn't work. Uh, Denial is what I call the 51st state, the state of denial. And it works until it doesn't work anymore. Um, Nothing good has ever come from not facing something so that we can fix it nothing good has ever come from not telling the truth when we should tell the truth nothing good has ever come from silencing uh, your voice or someone else's voice who needs to be heard I want to encourage you as I encourage myself and others in my circle daily to say what you need to say and to have conversations but also listen 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 not to be right Listen to hear, listen to be empathetic, listen to be sympathetic, listen to learn and to grow. You may not be able to understand an immigrant's journey. You may not be able to understand the woman at your job who is a single mom who's raised four kids on her own and barely makes ends meet every week. You may not be able to relate to that person of color Who's from a different experience, a different walk, a different reality than you? But you should listen, you should fellowship, you should grab a cup of coffee, you should have lunch, you should invite people into your home. I'm a big entertainer, I love to entertain. In fact, I gotta dial it back, I do too much, but I like having people in my home. Now, I try to be very discerning about who I let in my home because everybody has energy, people have spirits. And you have to be careful about what you allow to come into your sacred place, your home. Um, But I like to entertain. And whenever you come to a Sophia Nelson gathering, everybody knows this. There are going to be white people here. They're going to be black people, people of color. They're going to be older people, middle-aged people, young people. They're going to be married people, divorced people, single people. They're going to be spiritual people, people who may not know God at all, but are good people I am always going to gather around my table different people because that's how we learn and that's how we grow. And that's how we uh, make friends and develop friendships that we would have never expected uh, can sometimes end up being the best friendships. I have neighbors and friends who are more like family to me than family are to me. That's not an indictment. That's a reality. All of you have the same. You have people that have been in your row, in your circle, in your life for so long that they've become family. Um, And sometimes throughout seasons, we untie. Sometimes we move away. Sometimes we get married, we have children, we get a new job. And sometimes those relationships are not what we once had them to be. But sometimes they rekindle and people move in and out of our lives. So I want to talk to you briefly today about the events of the past weeks and try to put some context for you um, as this is a podcast about America. And I want to talk about um, the Amber Geiger trial in Dallas and uh, Botham Jean's brother and what he did on the stand and what the judge did. I want to talk about the fact that one of the key witnesses um, In that case, Joshua Brown was murdered over the past weekend and they have no idea who did it. In fact, he was probably the star witness for the prosecution. I want to talk about the place of evangelical leaders and our faith in this country and how is it that these men and women of faith who have done so much good in the world, fed people, clothed people, led people to Christ, can look at and watch immorality lawlessness and things that we never would have tolerated, uh, back in the eighties or the nineties, or even 20 years ago in this country from our leaders. Why is it that none of that seems to matter? And I have a theory, uh, which is based in years of working in politics and government and writing books and research groups and training in corporate America, Um, We're in a very dark period right now. I've said this from the outset. It's why I started this podcast. America is undergoing um, some very difficult times right now. We're 241 years old. We are a republic. Republics do not have long shelf lives. I've said that before. Um, And it's because representative democracy requires work. Representative democracy requires the engagement of the people, people being informed, people being uh, educated about uh, the issues of the day, health care, education, the economy. How are we going to pay off the debt? What's the impact of tariffs on our lives? um, Are we at full employment? Are we... Um, losing jobs in certain sectors that require people to be retrained. All of these issues which affect our day-to-day lives as Americans require us to be informed and engaged, and most of all, self-governing. And what has happened is we've gotten into a lazy streak. And part of it is, folks, we don't have conversations anymore. I say this in speeches And every time I give a speech about this, not only does the audience roar to thunderous applause, in some cases standing on their feet, because people understand that we are disconnected and we're disconnected because our devices have connected us in a way that has made us intellectually lazy, emotionally lazy, and relationally lazy. We don't do the work on anything anymore because if we can push a button if we can delete, if we can unfriend, if we can, um, do it by text, if we can send the message by text, instead of having the courageous conversation, we're satisfied. And then we move on. Uh, this weekend, I wrote a piece in, uh, the daily beast, uh, newsweeks, the daily beast about, uh, the Amber Geiger trial. And, uh, as you all saw, as I saw on the news, uh, Botham Jean's younger brother, who's from the island of St. Lucia where they're from uh, on the stand uh, made this grand gesture of forgiveness towards the police officer who shot and murdered his brother. She was found guilty of murder, not manslaughter in Texas, which is recklessness, which is a lower form which is what I thought would happen um, because of course um, if you listen to the officer's testimony and the way she presented facts, she mistakenly thought she went into her apartment. And then upon seeing another person thought it was an intruder in her house and shot him. And if that's the case, of course, she didn't wake up that morning and say, I'm going to go kill my neighbor today by accident later. But of course, that's not what happened based on the finder of fact, the jury based on what was presented. And they found that she did commit murder and, um, The younger brother got on the stand and said, I don't wish you any harm. I don't even want you to go to jail and ask, could he give her a hug? Well, this was played all over the world as this um, act of godliness, of this act of forgiveness. And of course, it stirred a lot of controversy, particularly in the black community, because there are deep tentacles to Black people who have been brutalized, battered, beaten, uh, mistreated in America and who have been expected to forgive, who've been expected to turn the other cheek, who've not received reparation or compensation, who have uh, dealt with the fallout of America's racial legacy for hundreds of years and been expected to just look the other way. And although as a Christian, I most certainly believe in forgiveness. I believe in grace because I need it every day. I'm a sinner. I fall short. But the reality is, is that forgiveness is a two way street. Love is a two way street. Um, Talking and communicating is a two way street. And it erupted as a controversy. I wrote about it from the perspective of that historical context. I just explained, but also The fact that we have a system of justice in America and when you commit crimes, you are sentenced, you serve, you pay your penalty, you must um, have a consequence. God is in the forgiving business. The justice system is in the justice business. At least it should be. And so I wrote an article expressing how I felt about it. Uh, The article has gone viral. It's done very well and I'm blessed that most of what I write tends to connect either for or against, but it stirs up conversation. And that's always really my goal, to make us talk, to challenge us to, to rise higher, to challenge us to consider a point of view that may not be our own. And one of my dear friends sent me a text, and this is back to my point of the power of courageous conversation. And she's a white woman, and she's a southern white woman, someone who I love dearly. And she went on this rant on a text. I can't be associated with this article in any way. And, you know, I know that you don't like Donald Trump. I don't know how he got into the conversation, but it always comes back to him, doesn't it? And I'll get to that in a moment. But I found her text to not only be offensive, uh, but it was more offensive because she texted it versus calling me and talking to me about reading my article and not agreeing. Now, as a white woman... She has no clue what it's like to be a person of color in this country. And I'm going to say that because that's true. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. Uh, But I have no idea what it's like to be a gay person in America or to be an immigrant in America. Because I'm not those things. Uh, All I can do is be empathetic. All I can do is try to understand. All I can do is try to be a decent uh, human being that uh, makes sure that I treat everyone fairly and honestly uh, as I want to be treated. But I say that to say that I hit her back and I was very brief. I mean, I really, I went into lawyer mode and just said, you know, you disappoint me one because you texted me. You you know my number. You can come to my house. You can stay in my house. But if you and I as two people that supposedly love each other and are good friends and have been to each other's homes and supported each other and been there for each other, can't have a conversation about race If we can't have a conversation about our faith, if we can't have a conversation about where we are, we're in trouble because we're actually supposed to care about each other. And what I realize is, is that we are deeply divided. Again, I said that at the outset when I started this podcast, America is deeply divided right now. The president of the United States tragically and regrettably has been talking about civil wars and people rising up that man is i make no bones about it i do not like that man i think he's the most godless um unholy unrepentant um lawless rogue um divisive human being i've probably ever seen in my lifetime and that's saying a lot because i've been in politics since i was a teenager coming first as an intern and then serving on Capitol Hill in various respects. So I've seen it all. I've been in the office of the Speaker. I've been in the White House. Uh, I've sat with presidents and ambassadors and senators and members of Congress. And I've never seen anything like what we see right now. And thus, the point of my Monday motivation for us to begin to have the courage, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more, a more perfect union, I'm sorry. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, we, the people, this is a representative government. It is on us. It is not on the Senate. It is not on the Congress. It is not on the president. It is not on the Supreme Court to fix what's broken, folks. It's on us. And it's going to start with us around the water coolers. It's going to start with us at church. It's going to start with us worshiping together Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America every week. We are still racially segregated in this country by schools, by where we live, by where we work, by what we do. And we don't understand that our very republic, our very essence, our very democracy is at stake because we refuse to talk about it. We're yelling, we're fighting, we're carping. We're angry, we're menacing, we're threatening, particularly on social media. And if you didn't listen to my podcast about how to protect your social media and yourself during this impeachment inquiry process, then through the impeachment and through the trial, you need to listen to that because you're going to have fallouts with people with whom you disagree on fundamental issues of character and morality. And that's what I was saying to my friend. You and I can disagree politically. We can disagree about a lot of things. That's okay. Disagreement is good. It's good. We should have it. It's important. But when it comes down to morals and values and characters, I can't fellowship with someone. I can't be friends with someone. I can't be in love with someone who fundamentally violates my character system, my belief system, my my who I am as a Christian, who I am as a woman of God, who I am as a citizen, then we have problems. So folks, we're going to have to learn how to talk this thing out. And I need to say this to those of you, to those of you who are not people of color, hear me on this. Just because you haven't experienced it as a white man or a white woman does not mean that it doesn't exist. you got to get that understood. Just because your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents didn't own slaves does not excuse you or the system from racism and sexism and all these other isms that exist. That's not realistic. Just because it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean others don't experience it. It doesn't mean you get to silence their voices. It doesn't mean you get to tell them to stop talking about it. It doesn't mean that it should just go away because it's uncomfortable. You wouldn't like that if it was done to you. I wouldn't like it if it was done to you. And we shouldn't do it to one another. So my simple challenge to you on this Monday, October 7th, is to find the courage to talk about things. Texting is not talking. Posting on your Facebook page is not talking. Talking is talking. Having a conversation is listening, it's learning, it's sharing, it's hearing, it's dialogue back and forth. It's being open that somebody else has experienced something different than you and they have something to contribute. If we cannot get there, and soon, if we cannot be clear as Americans about what is right and what is wrong, about what matters and what we want our kids to see and what we don't, we are doomed to fail. We are doomed to go the way of Rome, of great civilizations like Egypt, the great, the great civilizations of antiquity died in, in rubble, in ruin because of hedonism because of violence, because of civil war, because of factions breaking off, uh, because of a ruling class that was cruel to the masses. Folks, this is happening. This isn't partisan. This isn't MSNBC or Fox News or CNN. This is one of your fellow citizens talking to you and I want to hear back from you you can leave voicemails, you can send me emails you can, you can tweet me, you can Facebook me talk to me but you know I'm telling the truth here we are broken, we are divided and if we don't pull it together soon there won't be something to leave to your children and your grandchildren your nieces and your nephews there will be nothing to build on if we don't stop fighting each other if we don't learn how to talk to each other Get off the devices. Get off the texting. Stop being a punk and a coward and sending a text when you know you need to pick up the phone and ask, can you talk to somebody? Stop it. There's a better way. So my challenge to you today is to have a courageous conversation. To have them in all aspects of your life, but to have them because they matter and they make a difference. And they bring about change and they bring about healing and they bring about unity. They bring about understanding. That's my word to you today. I hope you hear me. Uh, God bless you. God keep you. And God bless the United States of America. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Sophia Nelson, and welcome to Eploribus Cast. I'm your host, as you know, and we have a special guest today, someone I admire, someone I follow on Twitter, you should too, and have had the pleasure of working with when I was with MSNBC as a commentator. I am pleased to introduce to you my colleague, a great American thought leader, a family man, an MSNBC contributor, and Princeton University's James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies, Eddie Glaude. Eddie, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm good, man. I'm good. Boy, I tell you, a lot going on in America right now, huh?
1: Indeed. Indeed. It's scary. These are scary and dark times all at once.
0: Yeah. You know, and both you and I, we've done Morning Joe together. We're both optimists. So when people like you and I start to think it's scary and dark, that makes me a little nervous.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm 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 always, you know, mindful of W.E.B. Du Bois's famous phrase and of the passing of the firstborn. He says, I'm I have a hope that's not hope. That's, that's where I am right A now.
0: hope that's not hopeless. You, you got you got cut off a little bit there, so give us that quote again so we make sure we got it.
1: Okay. A hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. I got that.
0: That's good. That's real good. Everybody, put that one on your board of quotes. I know many of you do vision boards. You, you have your little yellow stickies all over to encourage yourself. W.E.B. Du Bois is always someone to be quoted and to pay attention to you know I want to get right into it because I know you're a busy man and uh, these are busy times Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Tuesday night October 14th or 15th whatever day it was but Tuesday night um, CNN hosted the sixth presidential debate Um, and I want to know what you thought who do you think did a good job Did anybody help themselves hurt themselves who's looking like the nominee
1: well, you know, I don't think um, anyone hurt themselves. Um, you know, we're at, I don't know if the debate changed uh, the, the, the current state of affairs, the, the top three still remain the top three, and that's uh, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. Uh, I think Pete Buttigieg tried to make a move. Uh, in some instances, I thought Mayor Pete were, was a bit harsh and shrill uh, in some of his responses. I thought Amy Klobuchar and, and and uh, Beto O'Rourke tried to make some some headway by going after Elizabeth Warren and and Mayor Pete as well, uh, particularly around the question of taxes and Medicare. I thought that uh, Cory Booker's uh, closing remarks were were the best uh, uh, of the evening. Uh, uh, Vice President Biden uh, didn't lose a step. There were still some moments of profound uh, 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 incoherence, at least from my vantage point, um, you know, I, I can't wait for Vice President Biden to, to complete a thought uh, <laughs> or at least a sentence. Um, but for the most part, nothing changed. But I should say this, Sister Sophia, I was I was impressed. Bernie Sanders just had a heart attack and he stood up there for three hours uh, and he was strong. Uh, he was on message. Um, and and I think uh, uh, if any support, any of his supporters were doubtful, uh, they came away uh, reassured that he's in this for the long You know, I think
0: long. I agree with you 100% on your assessment. Um, and, you know, uh, my mom, who's a medical professional, uh, said to me, you know, the reason he looks better and sounds better and is stronger is because they cleared him out. He's he's actually in better shape. <laughs> you know, no, no jokes aside, she's right. When you have that type yeah. of surgery and they unclog arteries or block vessels or whatever the case Uh, You know, your recovery time is important, but yeah, all of a sudden now it's like, uh, you know, for lack of a better analogy, you know, if you have a stopped up drain and you get that Drano working, Mm -hmm. that thing works like magic as soon as it's (laughs) unclogged. Well, it's the same thing with us, right? So I thought it was great to see him. I'm not on the Bernie train, but I respect him. Certainly I respect anybody. At 78 years of age, it has a heart attack and he can get on the stage and do what he did. And I agree with you. I think he acquitted himself really well. Um, I think that Vice President Biden, I just, oh, I love him and want him to be the guy so bad, but he's just killing me over here. So, I, you know, I.
1: What, what you know, I don't have any any, any dogs in this fight. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm clear that I'm a, I'm, I'm a progressive if there are labels that I would want to uh, apply to myself. Uh, uh, but it is, it is the case that, you know, uh, Vice President Biden has to uh, uh, be clear uh, in, in, in his vision, in his presentation of his vision for, for, the, for the country. Uh, but, but I thought uh, it was an interesting juxtaposition last night uh, or the other evening between, you know, seeing and watching um, Elizabeth Warren uh, uh, respond as the front runner, uh, as people tried to push her on her policies to get her to be a little bit more forthright or just simply forthright about how she was going to pay for Medicare for all. Um, and, and so we saw uh, some slight differentiation, uh, which is important, but we have a long way to go. Uh, before we get to Iowa, before the first vote is cast, uh, many of these folks will continue to uh, make themselves known to, to the electorate. And hopefully we'll start winnowing the field down so that we can begin to to, to hear and see more clearly and more substantively the differences between the yeah, candidates. Yeah,
0: I agree. I mean, I'm a political junkie, have been my entire life, been in Washington, worked on the Hill, covered the Obamas. You know, I've been doing this a long time and I found myself worn out and weary 12 people is just too many people to try to sift through, to listen to. Uh, It becomes like a food fight. Some of the people you want to hear from can't get a word in edgewise. Uh, I wasn't happy necessarily with the opening question, which segues me into the next thing I want to talk about, which is uh, the opening question from Anderson Cooper, who was the moderator on CNN among his other two colleagues, was about uh, the impeachment inquiry. And I guess that sets the tone for everything we're going to be talking about, certainly for the rest of this year and into next year. Uh, To my understanding, based on the breaking news, I just saw that the Republican Senate conference just had a meeting and the whole discussion was about uh, the hearing. Uh, It would be six days a week, not on Sundays until they were finished. Uh, No socializing on the floor of the Senate, only in the cloakrooms. And so, Signals to me that Leader McConnell fully expects him to be impeached and soon, and that they will hold the trial. So um, I think what I want to hear from you, my friend, is what are your thoughts on whether or not you think he's going to be impeached? And then secondly, what is that going to do to the country? Where where is this going to take us as we head into a presidential cycle? Because that's never happened before.
1: Right. You know, I think, I, I think he's going to be impeached. Um, it seems to me that uh, given what's in the public record, um, uh, articles of impeachment are warranted, it seems to me. Um, um, I don't know. I think uh, Leader McConnell has made it clear that he's committed to uh, uh, a trial. Uh, that how long it will last, <laughs> given McConnell's shenanigans, I'm not sure. Uh, but but I do know that it's important for for our constitutional uh, republic that uh, uh, the Congress exercises its oversight responsibilities vis-a-vis the executive. We are in the middle right now, Sophia, of I think uh, of, of a constitutional crisis where. Uh, What we've experienced over generations with regards to the ever expanding nature of executive power has now come to a head. Uh, And the elected body, uh, legislative body of this country has to exercise its constitutional responsibility uh, in light of an executive branch that has gone rogue, uh, that seems to flout every democratic norm that in some ways uh, uh, undergirds our system. So I think it has to happen. Now what it will mean for our political process is another question. Um, I I am convinced that what Donald Trump has been doing, he's been doing it since the Mueller investigation, since before he was elected president, is setting the ground to question the legitimacy of of any outcome that is not in his favor. So we're going to face, I think, uh, a deep division within the country about whether or not this is simply politically motivated, uh, whether or not folks just simply want to undermine uh, what they take to be a free and fair election, that this is an undemocratic process, or to use Donald Trump's language and his minions, uh, that this is in effect an attempt at a political coup, and to the extent to which folks view that to be the case or understand that to be the case, our the political the presidential the presidential election is going to be fraught. Um, to put it lightly, it's going to be weighted by these these deep divisions that will only be. Uh, deepen uh, uh, once the articles of impeachment are delivered to the sen- Senate. So we have to buckle up because it's about to get even uglier in the Yeah, country.
0: I just want to echo uh, everything that uh, Eddie said here because as someone who uh, is an attorney by trade as someone who uh, uh went before the bar of the United States Supreme Court as someone who worked as a House committee counsel, majority counsel back in the late 90s when Bill Clinton was being impeached. Uh, He's absolutely right. And I want to underscore that uh, Eddie would deem himself a political progressive if he labeled himself. We all know I'm a moderate Republican. They don't really exist anymore. My mentors were people like Jack Kemp and Christy Todd Whitman and Pete Wilson and people like that, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, those type of Republicans don't seem to be around much anymore. Mitt Romney, you could say, is one of the last ones left. But so Eddie and I might not agree on a whole lot politically, but I think we agree probably on a lot intellectually and culturally around where our Mm -hmm. country is. And Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, Eddie, what I want to get into now, because I really feel like there's an underbelly here. I feel like there's something that I'm missing and that a lot of Americans are perplexed by as to one, how in the hell did we get in this place? And two, what is it that president Trump is connected with, uh, with at least a third or more of this country? If you look at the polling data, uh, which by the way, interestingly, hold that thought for a moment, folks, the polling data as of, uh, when this podcast will be public, um, is that 52% of Americans, according to Gallup, which is definitely a more conservative poll, and 51%, according to Fox, Fox, say that they support impeachment. And those numbers are almost as equal for people that think he ought to be removed. Now, when you begin to break that down by Republicans, Democrats, and independents, uh, Eddie, you find an interesting divergent points. The independents are overwhelmingly for removal. Republicans are not, of course. That number's going higher. It's over 20%. And then, of course, Democrats also, it's pretty high. So I think the first thing I want to talk about is your sense as a professor of African-American studies. What's really, I mean, you hear it every day that the underbelly here is white fear, uh, white flight, not just from neighborhoods and communities, but feeling like this is not the country they grew up in. Uh, that this country's becoming recklessly diverse and full of immigrants etc is there a tr- is that is that what we're dealing with i mean let's just try to take this apart a little bit what what's going on here
1: well i think i think so i mean the political science literature is very clear about this when we look at uh works by john cities and others they they unpack the 2016 election as principally being about race. that what we, what we're seeing is a deepening division in the country where party affiliation actually maps onto racial identification. Mm-hmm. So, wow. so the Demo- where the Democratic Party seems to be the party that represents diversity and the Republican Party seems to be uh the party that represents a kind of uh a, a desire for a certain kind of white America. Um and what we saw in terms of Uh, how elections play themselves out, and particularly how the presidential election played itself out in 2016, was how those racial anxieties uh, uh, played themselves out with party identification, which led to deepening divides. So what people are calling tribalism in our politics is really a kind of euphemistic way of talking about how race is animating everything in our current moment. But what we're seeing, I think, in, in, in very clear ways, are the pressures of demographic shifts? Mm-hmm. People have been talking about the browning of America yep. for a while, but we saw the effects of the brown, "quote unquote" browning of America—the uh, fact that we will be a majority-minority nation by 2040. Or uh, we've saw we've seen the effects of that shift already in our yep. politics, and we saw it in 2008 when we looked at the Obama coalition, and 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 it was clear that a certain kind of configuration of the electorate. Uh, could deliver the White House uh, to a particular, you know, to a particular party uh, for a while if things didn't change. And so the politics became really intensified or the tribalism, quote unquote, became really intensified once a black man ascended to the White House. And those numbers began to become, uh, um, shall we say, clear indicators of the shift in the Let country. Let me pause you there. And then then hold you can... on, stop. Sure. It's
0: an important thing sure. to underscore because I hear this all the time. I live out in rural Virginia. Most of my neighbors are Caucasian. They're all good people, but they are overwhelmingly supporters of, of Trump. And I don't understand it. Particularly people of faith that go to church. They, you know, faithful in their marriages. They, they're good people. I don't know what's happening, but when I push back and I say that uh, some of this is a reaction to having a black president they get very animated and they think that's utterly preposterous because they say well how can that be true if America elected a black man president how can then America turn around and be racist and then elect someone who you know would push racial buttons etc and that would be their primary motivation they, they really don't accept that thesis so well, what's that about
1: well, I think, first of all, that's a historical, I mean, I can give you two quick examples. You know, Tom Watson, one of the most notorious racists from the state of Georgia, uh, former governor. Uh, you know, when he, he started his political career as a popular, there are mo- we have stories of Tom Watson alongside of other white and black farmers with guns defending those farms, defending black farmers, their land. And he turned out to be one of the most vicious racists in the country. Or another example, George Wallace. George Wallace was um, uh, 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 a moderate to populist politician, and he lost an election. and He's famous. He's famous for saying, "I will never be out inward again." Right. So, so, so it's not the case that uh, the country has. How, let me let me say it differently. Let me put, put it positively, Sophia. The country has made gestures toward being genuinely racial, uh, you know, multiracial democracy before. And the country has betrayed those gestures over and over again. So it, it, it's not a surprise that there was this moment where, and I write about this in my upcoming book uh, uh, on James Baldwin called Begin Again, that it's not a surprise that the country imagined that the election of a black man signaled a shift in, 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 in the very center of gravity sure. of our politics, and then turned around and doubled down on its ugliness. Yeah. People people are unsettled when they watch these commercials with these am- racially ambiguous people or these interracial couples or these uh, racially ambiguous children. Folks are uncomfortable when they are, they go and they see that their cities have changed, the demographics of their neighborhoods are changing, that their cities are beginning to look more and more like Houston as opposed to your rural town in mm-hmm. Virginia. Folks are uncomfortable that it seems that the country is shifting. And that cultural anxiety, actually it's that cultural anxiety, according to social scientist Sophia, is actually driving the economic anxiety. I'm I'm not doing as well as I should be doing. My children's future isn't as bright as it should be because these black and brown people are taking all of the opportunities.
0: And I think, st- stop there, because that's that's real. And again, you know, I have a lot of listeners from all over the world, all over the country, and a lot of them are, are Caucasian and, you know, Latino, African-American, et cetera. And this is important for my white listeners. I need you to hear this, because one of the most important things, you know, uh, you cannot fix what you will not face. That's a Baldwin mm. quote. <laughs> and mm. if you will not have the courage to understand that for example we take the shooting of the young black woman in texas and we look at the number of random shootings by police officers of african americans stopped in their cars etc versus dylan Roof, who goes and murders nine black people in a church and then is taken peaceably with no incident of not even guns pulled on him. He's put in a flak jacket. He's taken to Burger King to get food. This isn't made up. If you can't understand, my fellow Americans, that there is a difference in my reality and Eddie's versus yours, you're not paying attention. And I think to your point, Eddie, I bring this up because I think that what, happens is when you're not used to seeing one group of people act in a certain way, so for example, the Obamas ascend to the White House. They're very powerful. They're a faithfully married couple. It's like the Cosby show, Come to Life, right? They have well behaved children. They, you know, they fit your Mm -hmm. all American family, but that's not the way we usually define black families. And so, Mm -hmm. what I hear from a lot of whites, friends and otherwise colleagues will say well Sophia how can there be racism look at you and look at Oprah and look at look at LeBron James and look at the Obamas the Obamas are making you know they got a hundred million dollar deal with Netflix they got a 67 million dollar book deal how can America be racist Eddie what do you say to that
1: well (laughs) we're the exceptions to the rule You know, and you know, it's always the case that the exceptional black folks somehow become uh, justification for the continuation of of systems, uh, of of structures, and a cultural ethos that values that values some people over others. Uh, it is it is the case that I am I am a university professor at Princeton University, uh, and you can probably count count folks like me on on, on yep. your hands and two feet, Uh, but when you think about the number of black and brown people who are in prison, when you think about the number of black and brown children and poor children who are languishing in poor schools, when you think about uh, 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 all of the kind of uh, disparities that we know that exist in our healthcare system that are are racially rooted, when we think about the wealth gap, the education gap, uh, the empathy gap, I mean, we can go down the line. Uh, folks need to understand, Sophia. This is really important. I was born in 1968. The last major piece, the last major piece of legislation of the civil rights movement of the great society, was the, probably the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Twelve years later, uh, with the election of Ronald Reagan, and we can disagree about the particulars of the policy. There was an, uh, there was an assumption that we had achieved what right. we set out to achieve in the right. 1960s, as if. All of the generations of of policies that had in some ways led to differentials in wealth, uh, that led to uh, differentials in opportunity, uh, had suddenly solved. So part of what we have to do, and you hit it dead on the head with the Baldwin quote, you can't fix what you can't face, and we can't have reconciliation without Mm -hmm. the truth. Amen, that's real. We have have to tell the truth about where we are and how we got here and what we've done. Uh, And so it seems to me that if we're going to understand Trumpism, we can't exceptionalize him either. Wow. That's and what deep. do I Would mean you by just that?
0: Said, break that down.
1: What I mean by that is that we want to displace all of our sins on the Trump. Yes. We want to say that he's the problem. Yes. And he's that's all symptom. we need to do is get he's rid of symptom him. Of a problem. He's a sanctum. Yeah. If he was just if it was just him, then we wouldn't see all of these Republicans bending over backwards to follow him. Where we where we where we wouldn't see if it was just him, we wouldn't see unless this is going to hit home, we wouldn't see evangelical white Christians, right, warping and, and distorting the gospel to support this guy, because in fact, what they're doing, and I'll say this as the former president of the American Academy of Religion, I would say that, that that they're engaged more so in a defense of the idolatry of whiteness than they are of Christianity. You know, it's
0: funny you say that. It's not funny because you know I've been writing about this quite a bit. And I just had a piece in yes, indeed, USA, I read. Yeah, I just yeah. had a piece in USA Today about this last week, and I know that I'm stepping on toes and I'm you know upsetting people. One of my dearest friends, who happens to be white, who lives in Texas, who's a big Trump supporter and in the the camp of big evangelical church, I think her pastor is. Uh, Uh, Kenneth Copeland and uh, another big Trump Mm -hmm. supporter and um, she sent me this really irate text she was very upset with my article and I said you know you're going to have to deal with it you're going to have to like it or not like it I really don't care because it's the truth how dare you call yourself a lover of Christ and a lover of God and you can support all this Yet Obama wears a tan suit and you guys want to take him out Obama was in church every Sunday that I saw with wife with children one wife no children out of wedlock No baby mama's on the side. No hint that he's cheated on his wife. And yet you guys couldn't give him. You call him a Muslim. You call him all these things. And so you're right. If we're going to tell the truth about where we are, we're going to have to start dealing with this. And Max Lucado, who you know is a big uh, Christian Mm -hmm. author, mega church pastor... Wrote a piece that's in the Washington Post that everybody's been posting. Um, this blog he did, which got reprinted. Mm-hmm. And he said, that, You know, this man's not decent. He, he said he's tired. He's not taking it anymore. He wouldn't let his daughters date somebody like that. He, you know, he's like, Come on, what are we doing? And so mm-hmm. I think that you're right. They've twisted themselves into a pretzel. You see the Republicans do it every day. People who I've known for years, who I respected once, who I know don't conduct themselves in this manner privately have looked the other way at everything to give Donald Trump a pass. And it's really upsetting, frankly. Uh,
1: You you know, I think think it's a combination of two things, Sophie. I think I really do. On the one hand, uh, I think it has everything to do with race. I think there is a a general uh, uneasiness uh, with the cultural shifts and the demographic shifts in the country. I see that. But I also think it's it's selfishness and greed. It's the intersection of race, of and selfishness and greed. And Trump sits in the sweet spot. So there's there are folks who aren't who who, who aren't in their hearts uh, white supremacists. They're not racists. Um, uh, uh, they 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 are loving. Uh, but you know they—they are—they're just preoccupied with—with with the almighty dollar. They're preoccupied with their own well-being. That their notion of the—the the idea of the public, the idea of of loving thy neighbor, of being in communion and community with others, right, takes a back seat to their pursuit of profit. And so you have these folks who are so committed, in my view, to—to—to uh, to, to their own selfish pursuits combined with folks who are who are committed to an idea that america must always remain a white nation in the vein of old europe and together together they have the country by the throne
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's right and i think that you know in the five minutes or so that we we have left because i like to keep these to the 30 minute mark um so that people Mm -hmm. are engaged i um I want to talk about, you know, we've touched on, you know, the debate. We know the the caucuses start in January. We know that eventually the Democrats will pick a nominee. uh, And we know who the Republican nominee will be, ideally, unless he is removed from office. And by the way, folks, I've said this before. I think there's a 50-50 chance he gets removed. Uh, I didn't think that before. But this situation in Syria... And the press conference that the president had on Wednesday, uh, October 16th, if you haven't watched it, you should, It's very upsetting. We've all but abandoned our allies. We're sending a very dangerous message of Turkey and Russia must be thrilled with that press conference. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I can see the shift happening and what I'm starting to see on Twitter and, and, you know, of course, my ears to the ground with Republicans and I know a lot of them and This could be their tipping point. Tragically, not the abuse of office, not the uh, refusal to honor uh, co-equal branches of government subpoenas and oversight authorities, which, of course, you know, was an article against Nixon, etc. That seems not to bother them, which is very upsetting. But I honestly believe that this issue that we've gotten ourselves into now by seeding uh, Syria and the Kurds to Turkey is going to come back and haunt us in ways, Eddie, that we can't imagine here on the homeland. Uh, ISIS is going to resurge and we're going to see ourselves in a very difficult uh, position. So I think that there's a chance that he gets uh, removed. But what I wanted to say in these last few minutes and just kind of get your thoughts on what is, it, you know, I don't know that there's a way forward. I I wrote a book uh in january 2017 Epluribus uh one reclaiming our founder's vision for a united america and what i was simply talking about was that uh you know if you look at how this nation started we start half slave and half free and yet we're we're professing these notions of liberty and freedom for all men except for black men and black women and then you know we fast forward and the founders have a vision that I think we can all say is extraordinary right? It was an extraordinary vision mm-hmm. uh, but flawed because of slavery and my thought is that you know when you look at our motto e Pluribus unum," when you take that at its most raw core it suggests that we don't all have to be alike it suggests that we should be different, that we should think differently, that we should challenge one another and that from that diversity of thought of ideal, of value, of et cetera, we become one great nation. Eddie, I guess my question to you is, is that is that possible? Can we live up to that e pluribus minimum? And if Donald Trump uh, is re-elected, uh, what do you see happening? Or if he's removed, what do you see happening? Does the country split I'm very concerned um, in ways I've never been before. So I'm just going to kind of give you the floor and let you, you know, comment first on the e pluribus unum. And then, you know, what happens if the president is removed or if he remains, I think, is really the big question on the table.
1: I think, you know, I think both are, 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 are connected. And let me say it. Let me put it this way. Um, what has what has frustrated our path to a genuine democracy? has been and has always been our belief that white people matter more than others in this country. We've organized our political Mm -hmm. system to reflect it. And at every turn, when we try to do better, when we try to reach for our higher angels, there's a reassertion of the belief, Mm -hmm. Sophia, that white people ought to be valued. All right, stop there,
0: because that's going to upset white folks that are listening. And I'm going to talk to them right now. Stay here. Stay parked. Don't fail. Don't stop listening to podcasts. podcast. Listen. And hear what he's saying. It's not an attack. It's not a put-down. You're trying to speak truth. And to amplify, but I'm going to let you finish your thought, is not so much. It is that... I'm trying to explain this. Okay, so if you look at the way we start this country, and, and I started there intentionally, you're absolutely right. It's, it's systems and... Structures that were set up for white male landowners at first, right? White mm-hmm. male mm-hmm. slaveholders at first, white male financiers, the Vanderbelts, you can go into, you know, the Rockefellers and you begin to look at the Industrial Revolution. Even poor white people, hear me on this, folks. You weren't a part of that whiteness either. Am I right, Eddie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, go ahead, finish your thought. Keep listening now.
1: I mean, so... So so the point that I'm trying to suggest here is that if we're going to finally release ourselves into a different possibility, into a different way of being, we're going to have to finally kill, put to death, this ideology of whiteness. We're going to have to finally put to to bed this belief that white people matter more than others. And then together reimagine ourselves. You know, I put it this way in my new book. I say... We need a third American founder. Mm, that's it. You know, we have the we have the revolution which founded this great country. And then we we almost tore ourselves to to shreds with the and civil race war.
0: And race was a central and issue.
1: Labor. It was a central issue. It was at the heart of the yes. civil war. And and as a result of this of reconstruction, the modern US nation state was idea of citizenship untethered from the notion of race with the Civil War amendments, with the 13th, 14th and 15th -hmm. amendments. So the idea of the modern U.S. nation state happened in the second founding, which is that period. And then we had in the middle of the 20th century, the Black Freedom Revolution, which sought to, in some ways, make good on the promise of the second of the second founding. But here we are in this moment of moral reckoning with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is to reimagine who we are as Americans together. And the only way we can do that is that we must finally leave behind this idea that because you're white, you are to be valued more than others. I put it this way to my friends all the time. I happen to love profoundly some people who happen to be white and then they're white people. There's a difference Mm. in my mind. And so part of what we have to do is to begin to imagine a genuine kind of mutuality with each other. So if Trump is, if Trump wins or if he's put out of office, we're going to confront that reckoning. Mm-hmm. And it's going to require all of us, Sister Sophia, no matter what our I ideological agree. preferences are, to reach deep down inside to imagine ourselves anew. And, you know, Jimmy says we have to do our first works over. That is, you know, quoting revelations, we have to begin again. And that's what we will have to do together. And hopefully hand in hand, arm in arm, we will do so and, and really, really reach for the promise that is the greatness of yeah, God. Yeah.
0: And I think that that's the idealistic, optimistic Eddie, Sophia, and many of the people we know and who we associate with. And again, I I say this all the time and I the whole point of my book was to stress the people You don't have to agree. America's not about you agreeing with somebody. It's not about us having to have Mm -hmm. the same point of view or the same politics. None of that is true. That's, in fact, the opposite of what we're founded on. But at the end of the day, when you love your country and you love your nation, you do, as you said earlier, you honor the Constitution. You honor the documents that keep us this great republic that we still are, a diminishing one for sure. Uh, and president Trump has done damage. And again, it's, this isn't a partisan statement. When you see a press conference, like the one that was given on Wednesday, and we have all but abandoned every principle that Ronald Reagan believed in that John Kennedy believed in that Dwight Eisenhower believed in, or, or George Herbert Walker Bush, or, you know, you can go on and on and on through your presidents in the, this modern era. And regardless of political party, those things stop at the water's edge, Right. When it comes to foreign affairs, Mm -hmm. we're very clear about who we are and and that we stick with our friends and to abandon that is profound. And so I'm not sure where we're headed, but I agree with you. I would just like to say that what worries me is when you see these white manifestos and you see someone Mm -hmm. walk into a Walmart where there are Latino and Hispanic people that shop there and open fire. Uh, and let leave behind this manifesto that I won't blame on President Trump, but certainly his rhetoric has given cover to. And I'm not, I don't know where we go from here and I'm, I'm concerned, but I will say this and then I'll let you have the final word. I'm going to quote W.E.B. Du Bois going out and he said, either America will destroy ignorance or ignorance will destroy the United States. Now, we, we can, folks, that's real. At the end of the day, we're either going to get through this together or we're not going to get through this. Eddie, am I right about that? I'll let you kind of close this out. No, you're,
1: no you're, ab- you're absolutely right. And, you know, it, it, it's, no, it's no reason for me to kind of repeat it. Uh, we have some dark days ahead and even some dark, even even darker days ahead. But, you know, the darkest, the darkest hour is midnight. And that's the dawn of a new day. Mm-hmm. So we're on the cusp of a new beginning but it, it it depends on the choices we make mm. the future of the country depends on no one else but us okay. and we have to confront the choice and hopefully we will make the right one even though our history suggests we will
0: well it has been my pleasure to have you you know that you and I could run our mouths all day and talk all day about a whole <laughs> lot of things I don't even want to get started I get my glass of wine you get your Jamesons and we'd be on here just talking but I will have you back what's the title it of your new it. book that's coming out?
1: it's called Begin Again James Baldwin's America and it's Urgent Lessons for Our Own it'll be out well, in the I'm spring I'm
0: excited about that where can people uh, follow you on social media and see you on television?
1: Oh, sure. They can um, just follow me on Twitter at ESGlaw. Uh, and anytime, you know, I'm on MSNBC all the time. So just 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 change, you know, run the channels. As my you know,
0: I will say. I will say this too. just again as a close. This occurred to me and I wanted to bring this up uh, as we were talking, but I forgot um, And you and I were born in the same year. So, uh, you know, uh, you understand. I understand. Uh, and uh, but I've seen some of the uh, comments that you get. Uh much like ones I get are emails, and they're not very kind. Uh, they're racially they're awful. Um and I just want to say to you to keep the faith, keep up the fight, um, be smart, be vigilant, and um keep doing what you do because you really you say some stuff that hits a note with people. Um up doing what you do keep writing keep pushing us uh keep challenging us to go higher uh, because i think that's what matters
1: thank you thank you so much keep me covered and i'll you keep got you got it, covered. brother
0: i'll talk to you soon
1: bye-bye <laughs> all right take care bye-bye